When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello and welcome back to Red Room. This is Jenny, your very horse host. Um, someone else out there has to be like me where you cannot go on a night out without losing your voice. This never used to be part of my reality, but in the last like five years or so, I swear to God, it's like I can't subtly go out on a night out, night out. you know, it's like I my body, my voice and my mind have to pay for it. For days after this is like entering your 30s, I do feel, or just like, you know, the second half of your life of hangovers. <laughs> no longer can you like go out in a bit of a mad one, experience it and be over it by Monday. It's now like a Wednesday or a Thursday and weeks and weeks of saying you'll never do that again. Um, Very on topic, though, for this week's episode. So this is going to be a new thing I'm doing with Red Room. Um. I obviously have been doing the podcast now for, I think about like, oh my God, this is my eighth month doing Red Red Room. How crazy. That's fucking wild to me. But, you know, I wanted to kind of like settle into my content and figure out what the bones of Red Room are. Uh, Before branching into new things, now you would have seen, I have started to get loads of guests on the podcast. I got loads more booked in. I'm going on other podcasts. Uh, Some of you guys have noticed that this week on a podcast called Fluently Forward, I think a lot of you guys listen to Shannon's podcast, she mentioned that I'm her 
her guest next week and we are collaborating. We did a really great episode uh, on her podcast, which is going to be next week, all about the Nixium cult. It's very Red Room kind of fucking content. There's so many overlaps with Scientology. I know you're afraid, you're probably sick of me banging on about Scientology, but this is a whole different uh, topic. If you know anything about Nixium, it's a crazy sex cult, Hollywood sex cult that like started off as a conspiracy and ended up being true. So, you know, very within... um, my world of content uh Shannon's gonna come on my podcast too super excited about that but you know I'm just trying to branch out and I'm trying to get like other voices other topics on here and something else I wanted to kind of start getting into was just doing um some more relaxed episodes for you guys that aren't as you know tied down to one topic that aren't as um sometimes I feel when I am doing a topic on say like the manifestation episode or the Streisand effect like you know I I take it seriously that I want to present um what I feel to be the closest thing to the truth to you all but sometimes I just want to chit chat and sometimes I want to talk about something that's on my mind something maybe a bit more topical And I still think that this show has, you know, a lot to do with what I talk about on here, which is the darker side of humanity, um, our kind of darker interests, secret lives, and I love a good coming of age story. I'm a whore for a coming of age story. So as you probably noticed from the episode title, we're talking about euphoria today. As I said, it's going to be super loose, super chilled, uh, just a bit of my feedback, my thoughts, my hot take on the show in general. Obviously, like it goes without saying, but like there are going to be spoilers in here. So like if you are invested in euphoria and you have not finished the second season, um, I would advise you, I don't know, maybe listen to this when you have. I, I don't know why you'd be listening to my hot take on euphoria if you haven't finished it yet, but I'm just letting you know. I, I, I'm not going to hold back and I'm not going to be like giving spoiler alerts throughout the show. It's just one massive spoiler alert. I finished the show. So that's the yeah, take that I'm coming from with uh, this little recap. So Euphoria came into my life way, way back uh, when it literally first came out. My friend Devin told me about it. And Devin is, we all, we all have that friend, right? Like Devin is my friend with, like that puts me on to what's good. Um, I think we, and I always think that you have to like give that friend credit because there's always one friend, no matter how well you think that you know TV or music or film or, you know, everyone thinks their own taste is elite. There's always that one friend you have that just is on the next level that like has these things that you're like, oh my God, you're like you know what's good, you know, and you put me on to good shit, good albums, good TV. Devin is that person for me. And he and I have like very similar taste. However, he has put me on to shit that I've been like really like uh, kind of said like, oh, I don't think I'm going to like that. And he's been like, trust me. And he's always been right. So he told me about Euphoria. He made a very brazen statement to me um, way back. I guess it was, was it 2019 or 2020 when I first saw it? I first saw it anyway, like when, as it was coming out. So whenever the hell that was, like in my mind, I feel like it's 2019, but like, I'm also like, I don't know. Everyone knows that the fucking world has gone recently. It's like, who can keep track of what year was what? He told me that this was better than Twin Peaks. He was like, the teenagers are going crazy. He's like, they're like doing drugs. It's insane. They're having sex. There's dicks on screen. Um, He's like, you have to fucking watch it. And if like, I mean, for as someone who was also a Twin Peaks fan, he as in him, 
I was like, okay, this is like a huge statement to make, but let's do it. Like, let's go and watch it. Because, you know, and I'll get on to this later, like, Euphoria is not the first show to show the teens gone wild, you know. It's not the first show to show quite unrealistic, or at least we think, um, aspects of teenagers living a wild life. And I think there's, like, artistic choices for that, but again, we'll get on to that in a moment. So I watch Euphoria. Um, the first season, I'm not going to go into too much depth on, on this podcast, because, like, the first season to me was, like, I really liked it. I liked the characters, but I found it a bit to have a bit of a shtick. Do you know what I mean? Like I found like the way they dressed, it was a little bit contrived. Um, and then you see that playing out on like TikTok and on Instagram of all the girls wanting to be Maddie or whatever. Um, I like, but I still really enjoyed it. I thought it was like a fun kind of darker skins, um, which you know was my bread and butter when I was younger. So I, as I said, I watched and I enjoyed it, and I thought the actors the characters I thought they were all really good I thought some characters were better fleshed out than others um like I kind of just thought Rue and Jules were really the only two characters that I kind of believed or was bought into in season one whereas the other characters just all felt a bit like side characters to me um but back to skins so this is where I started to be like, oh my God, so this is like the Gen Z skins. And let me tell you something, when skins came out, when I was, I mean, it must have been 2006 or seven. So I was like 16, 17 and I was the age of the characters. As far as I remember, I could have just been projecting, but I was the age of the characters in the show. And I think also it being a, a UK show, it felt closer to home that show fucking like embedded on me I think all of my friends would say the same from school like we loved it and I don't know like it was I think because we were the age where we were kind of doing that whole coming of age thing we had started going to the club we were you know going to telling our parents we're going to concerts but actually going to like a pub after and it was you know relatively PG for what most kids get up to at that age. I think I don't think it was anything really out of the ordinary, but because we were doing these small things that then were played out more dramatically on TV, we felt this connection to it. We were like, oh, we're just like them, you know. And I think Skins also had that had that UK, the British kind of sense of humor to it too. It definitely wasn't anywhere near as serious as Euphoria is, but there are parallels. I think people, I think people like to see teenagers acting wild because if you're older than that, it gives you a sense of nostalgia. And if you are that same age you kind of draw a parallel to maybe the smaller and more innocent ways that you're pushing the boundaries um, and the way that these characters are acting uh, out way more drastically. And like, that is TV at the end of the day. Like, I'm, I don't need, and I've said it before, I think on my vlog, like, I don't need to like a character. I don't need the character to be likable. Like, and I think that's something that is pushed a lot today on tv and you know that every character ha- for a character to be good they have to be essentially good and I'm all for the anti-hero like some of my favorite I mean we love the villains in Disney car in Disney uh, movies and they're sometimes you know 
they show us the shadow self they show us the darker sides of humanity and to me that just personally I've always been more drawn to them um and I think in skins people loved you know there was Effie obviously who was like the wild child the young girl sneaking out and getting her brother to sneak her back in and then there was um Cassie Cassie was like the eternal kind of like she was like the damsel in distress character she was the girl with the eating disorder she was the girl who didn't think she was pretty but like everyone was falling in love with her and she was the one who was like ODing on pills or whatever the fuck her character was doing and people kind of projected onto both those characters you know there's that kind of archetype and we're going to get into it but there are archetypes of that on euphoria too but my kind of you know, I, I, a conversation I see that goes on a lot around Euphoria is that like it's so unrealistic and it's, you know, too glamorous for teenagers and teenagers are going to start glamorizing drugs. And beyond I, the fact that I just don't think that's a very nuanced take, as in, if anything, Euphoria really makes drugs and addiction and what these kids are kind of going through and experiencing to seem very dark and scary. I don't think it's glamorizing it at all but also what's the point what's like the danger in highlighting things that that kids and teenagers because teenagers jobs are to push boundaries they are to push against their parents um, and find their own individuality like what's the harm in showing where that can go too far and the dangers in that um, and even though like when we were kids we 100% like glamorized and glorified and projected onto characters like Effie and Cassie who were doing nothing of what we were doing like like we we you know liked to play make-believe and be like yeah we're just like them like drinking a nagin but like we're not just like them and we weren't doing anything really like them at all and we probably didn't really want to because we knew that the scariness was very real and like some of the things that those characters were going through were not something that we wanted to go through. And I think teenagers are always going to, you know, play, it's like teenage make-believe. You know, when you're younger, you look at a Barbie and you go like, oh, I'm just like her and blah, 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 blah. But like somewhere deep down in you, you know you're not and you know that's also okay. So that's kind of my thoughts on that, that like, you know, if even if the show is showing like addiction and there might be a glamorous part to it I think you know I think I do think that most teenagers especially teenagers nowadays they're way more exposed to the realities of life more so than I was when I was a teenager I feel like they can get that nuance and even if they do project a little bit of the more glamorous aspects of the characters onto themselves or vice versa they can tell the difference between a tv show and reality (laughs) I like to think so. Maybe I'm naive. You can let me know. So I spoke earlier about Ruined Jewels, right? And I'm going to just, I'm going to talk about two of the most interesting dynamics that I personally found in the TV show, specifically in season two. I think that like season two really opened up um, a whole different depth of characters for this show. I felt you know everyone said like that first episode of season two was like oh shit this is kind of a different show this season we're kind of like dealing with similar themes but on a different level the budget was up it felt like it was shot so much more mindfully um 
I think a lot of you guys who are fans of the show probably heard this anecdote, but I still find it really cool that like um, Sam Levinson, who is the creator, the writer and the director of the show, he really wanted to use this specific Kodak film. So he obviously wanted to shoot on film and he wanted to use this specific film. I can't remember the name of it. It doesn't really matter, but it was made in the 80s or something like that. And it was known for like, it's like beautiful, like saturation and it's grain and how it showed skin up really well, specifically, I feel. But it was discontinued and he reached out to Kodak and they actually reproduced enough uh, film for him for the eight or nine episodes, however many there were for this season. So it was, and that really portrayed, like that came across so well, I thought in the pilot, not the pilot, the first episode. I think I was like, fuck, this seems to be like, there seems to be much more paying attention to detail here. And that was true because it literally went down to like making sure they had the exact right film for it. But um, I want to talk about Rue and Jules, right? Uh, As their relationship and independent characters, because... In the first season, they were definitely the two most well-developed characters to me. Um, and when I say well-developed, I don't mean like they have to be the most believable, but I felt like I I came away from season one knowing enough about those characters, knowing the right amount that I was I wanted to be, uh, that, the, that Sam Levinson, for example, would want me to know. The other characters, I kind of forgot all their names, except for Maddie, just because she was so... Um, viral like her look was the most viral but anyway we'll get on to her so as a couple Rue and Jules never really made sense to me like sexually um and chemistry wise they always come across and even though on completion of the second series as more of like this comfortable and not toxic Uh, as in the way we would usually consider this word to be, but uh, more of a codependency, but like a comfortable codependency. Does that make sense? Like they just seem to me to be, and it played out even more so um, on the second season as two super damaged people uh, looking to find comfort in each other. Now it's interesting because in the first season, Rue kind of comes in as... um, the solver of problems for Jules, right? Jules is, you know, struggling with a secret relationship who we find out to be Nate, who is not, uh, like, uh, presenting himself as Nate. And she falls to this person through the phone, etc., etc. We all know how that plans out. And she finds Jules who kind of sweeps her off her feet in a way. She shows her comfort and stability and normality um, that she never found maybe in uh, another male partner. For, like we're kind of assume we're assuming as the audience that, that she's only ever been with guys before Rue. And it's interesting when you look at how that's flipped in the second season because in the second season we obviously see Rue, who was a recovering um, addict in the first season. We see her fall into that addiction in the second season. And then we see Jules step into that role as the caregiver and and someone who is trying to hold someone together. Now, interestingly, when you look at it from the from this way, it's like the basis of their relationship was never of equals. It was always one person holding the other together. And even though in my mind, I'm like, even though Rue, Rue didn't know it in the first season, Jules was still holding her together then because 
she was seeing Jules as like the answer to her staying sober. And then when Jules left Rue at the end of season one, she fell apart. And I think that has a really interesting note on addiction or dependency or even just codependency in a relationship that like you can't look for that in one person. Like you have to, you have to be at least 80% um, fixed with yourself before you look for uh, someone else to top that up. The, the, the core of your like wholeness cannot come from someone else. So Jules, obviously we're kind of presented to Jules like as her having an, like a strange maybe relationship to sex. Um, obviously there's that crazy scene where you find out about her sleeping with Cal who has you know it's kind of a hookup situation which you know on paper is fine when you're like an adult but like if you imagine like a young um like trans girl doing this on apps like it, it that does seem very far-fetched to me as an adult as like oh my god like are 17 year olds doing this I don't know but again we can play out extremes um, as fantasy and kind of to still take lessons from it in a paired back version. But she has that in, in, encounter with uh, Cal, which she doesn't even know he films her. That obviously is, it's always a, a really dark scene for me. I remember that was, was that in the first episode of the first, I feel like it was, uh, or at least very early on. Um, it was definitely in my first sitting of watching Euphoria and I was like oh shit we're like really going here like that's kind of crazy and you know I see what she what she sees in Rue to me is like you know when one of your friends is known for going out with say like this like one type of guy like you know the girl who goes out with like the kind of semi-bogey guy or the druggy the drug dealer kind of dude or whatever the fuck it is the cheater who who knows it happens to the best of us. We can fall for the same person over and over until we find out what the lesson is that person is trying to show us. Um, and then all of a sudden they go for like the complete opposite. And while on paper you're like, okay, this is great. You're going out with a lawyer now. Because that person hasn't like actually learned the lesson they were supposed to learn from this other kind of person cons- consistently popping up in their life, you're just seeing it as a mask. And that's kind of how I see Rue for Jules it's like even though like don't get me wrong Rue has her own issues especially with addiction and we're going to get into like how that affects their relationship in a minute but you know Jules is like as again we're assuming she's only been with guys up now now she's kind of going okay maybe I can get this different kind of affection from uh, another woman and they do have this like intimate closeness that kind of only two women have and they play that out really well in Euphoria, I feel. Like, they they show that kind of love growing and it becoming, like, a romantic love. And But there is this feeling, for me, there always was, and it, it specifically was played out towards the later, the latter half of um, season two where Elliot gets involved and he shows her, like, he's kind of like, you know, Rue just doesn't seem, like, sexual and you're so sexual. And she's kind of, at first resist this but then she starts to see that and I think that that was like it was really interestingly done because before that I didn't put I couldn't put my finger on it but I kind of discovered that as the character was discovering that and I found that to be done like so fucking well that aspect was like very interesting to me because it brought up the question of like you know if you haven't dealt with your 
past relationship traumas or failures or whatever the fuck you want to call them like even if you do move on are you ever moving on or are you just kind of putting over like polyfiller over a huge crack in the wall rue again very interesting like you know we see in season two that question of like can you ever really express and feel love as an addict like and real romantic true love like because you know surely to be good to use a very simplified term in a relationship you have to be good with yourself and you have to you don't have to love your partner more than yourself don't get me wrong I don't think that should ever be the case but you definitely can't love a substance more than you love yourself and your partner and I think that's where that interesting kind of conversation comes in of like you hear people who date addicts and say I felt like I was in a relationship with the substance and the person and I would never win against the substance and that was played out so well um, and I know that there's a lot of talk about like Elliot standing for that and we're going to get into that because I'm going to go through the second half of this episode, I forgot to say it's not, um, some of the fan theories because I think that's a really fun way of talking. I love to speculate about fan theories, it's like one of my favourite things. So obviously we've got Rue becoming kind of a functioning addict in season two. Like it is funny though seeing uh, Jules's naivety come through, like there's that sound on TikTok where it's like oh yay we they finally made a jewels filter I can now you know be oblivious to my partner being smacked out of their mind (laughs) with me all the time and that is crazy in the show you're like she's like what's wrong Rue are you drinking a beer and Rue's like fucking eyes are rolling in the back of their head because she's after taking like a load of fucking oxy or whatever but um I think it 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 brings a really interesting dynamic to the relationship for sure what I saw ruled ruled (laughs) When I saw Rue um, wanting from Jules was like stability, normality Um, and Jules to her is like pure even though we know Jules isn't pure but Jules to her is this like purity and I think instead of Jules actually being pure it's Rue's kind of association with how she was when she met Jules because when she met Jules she was inspired to stay clean for Jules. And it's this, it makes her feel good by association. I feel like because Jules hates drugs so much and hates Rue's um, tendency to fall into addiction, Rue feels clean by association. I feel like when she is around Jules, even if it's not romantic, as we saw towards the second half of the of the series, like she's, they're not having sex, like Rue's too smacked out of her mind to be a good girlfriend. But she f- wants to keep Jules there because Jules being there makes her feel like she's still clean. Um, And that was such, it was, it was never pushed in our face. And it was really only when I started to like dissect the season to myself that I realized that. So what Jules to me wants from Rue, as I said, her backstory is complicated. So like she's this young trans woman from a broken family. And in season one, we find out that Jules's mother dealt with addiction. Um, I do, as a side note, I thought it was really interesting that like Sam Levinson really didn't dwell too much on Jules's transness. Um, I thought that was such an interesting and like non-Gen Z way to go, non-obvious. A lot of our TV shows now are super obvious and like don't let the audience fill in the blanks. And, you know, 
that's really when art be like that's really when television can become art when you can start to fill in the blanks for yourself like from what I remembered like they never explicitly even mentioned Jules being trans in the first season there's hints to it in the second season but it's never a it's never made a huge thing and it's also not made this like obvious blame for like the crux of her problems like I remember when they started to go into her um backstory with her mother being I think she's an alcoholic you know I was going oh no like are we going to get this whole like her mother couldn't stand that she was trans which of course does happen but it just would have been a very obvious um like road to go down but instead we have this other thing to come into it which is addiction and then we have these like weird Freudian tones and it's like how Jules is trying to fix her mother through Rue and that in turn would like help her heal her inner child like these wounds that were put on her as a child from her mother choosing alcohol above her and her father um and that to me just gives so much more depth than this one note of like Jules is a young trans woman and her parents broke up because they couldn't get over the fact that she was trans it's like no we're ascending from that that's like yes of course part of that experience but it's not the only thing that can affect someone who happens to be trans I thought that was really well done uh classy move by Sam Levinson (laughs) Sam on a first name basis so Jules is obviously like way more openly sexual than Rue um like even season one you've got the whole Nate situation and she as I said like she wants to move on from that so much that she finds Rue who is pretty much the antithesis of Nate right like not only just in gender but like she is not this jock uh she is empathetic she's fun and I do think Jules loves Rue but it's not romantic I think that Jules is someone who like finds it hard to navigate through romantic relationships and again this is kind of where it's like left open to interpretation from the audience you know could this be to do with her like questioning her sexuality like is she straight is she gay then there's that like complexity of adding in her being trans with that that's complicated I can imagine but I do think that she needs a lot from Rue she needs sobriety she needs Rue's sobriety to heal those inner child wounds that she has and she needs to be needed but deep down like Rue's love even if she was sober isn't what Jules wants. Jules doesn't want Rue's love because Rue is giving her love but as best she can but Jules is is really wanting something bigger which is for Rue to be sober for her and I think that that comes from that like maternal wound rather than you know, I've fallen in love with this girl and I'm seeing her fall into addiction and sure that's probably part of it but it's not why she wants her to be sober. She doesn't want her to be sober to be her best self because we saw it. She was sober in season one and Jill still kind of left. Like she left Rue and it's of course not Jill's fault that Rue fell back into addiction but if what she wanted was sober Rue, she had it and she didn't really want it but she's ignoring that to me. And again, I think that the you know for Rue it's she needs Jules's approval because that kind of she is running away from the fact that she is completely head over heels falling back into addiction and but but as long as Jules is there it feels like she hasn't because if she can fool Jules she can fool herself and if she can fool herself she can fool everybody else into thinking that she doesn't have a problem when she is at rock bottom of her problem.
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, next female duo that I want to talk about is Maddie and Cassie. I found in season one I was so bored by these two I have to say I was I was bored by Maddie because she was just so memed that can be um that's a downfall of myself <laughs> whatever becomes like memed and like everyone's like yes Maddie bitch and like the, the like everyone's you know using her because she says bitch so much I just found it a bit sticky and look there's nothing wrong with having a bit of a sh- bit of a gimmick in a show that's what makes it like especially nowadays with memes like that's what makes it fucking popular right but like I just I was just kind of like oh they just seem a bit like not deep characters to me but this season I really saw where the foundations were laid for these characters and now it's like the most interesting dynamic to me because I feel like they really represent two modern female archetypes and they are like Maddie who is this kind of stone cold bitch ice queen who you know, seems to be reinforced with this like incredible, unimaginable confidence, um, who is beautiful, who is wanted by men, um, but knows her worth, Uh, except if it comes to the one guy who doesn't know her worth, you know, but we can, that's a, that's a different story for a different day. And then we've got her number two, um, who is this kind of, damsel in distress character who plays into her own victimhood and a victim she is of some tragedies in her life but she knows it and she uses that to kind of curate herself around the male gaze she wants to be loved um you know that's made very clear to us in season one and um, that that is her primary goal and where they differ is maddie wants to be loved by nate um, he's her first love and it is an abusive emotionally abusive and at times physically abusive relationship and she's kind of in that Stockholm syndrome whereas Cassie wants to be loved by anyone she is looking for external validation constantly because she doesn't have that internal monologue that Maddie has that still tells her that she has worth and that she is confident and that is how and we all know someone like that you know we've all or we've been that girl where you are confident, you're beautiful, you are, you know, strong, but you still are in this fucking fucked up relationship, whether that be a, a, a friendship relationship or a romantic relationship. You, there's always somewhere that you don't know your worth. Whereas Cassie, she doesn't know her worth at all. She doesn't even like, she, but she thinks her worth is just being kind of of service to romantic relationships. Whereas I think deep down, 
the one relationship that affects her the most is her relationship with Maddie. And this is where, like, I think Euphoria fucking nails the complexities of female friendships. I have said it for years on whatever podcast I'm hosting at the time. Female friendships are so fucking complicated, especially when you are this duo. We've all been in that situation where you're like, a blah and blah, like me and her, we're best friends. Are they friends? I always say, are we kind of dating each other? And I don't mean that like in this way of like, you know, are we all in love with our best friend? We probably are to an extent. But female friends, like how two women, especially young women, how we interact with each other is so similar to, it's so intimate in its own way. It's not, it's not how we are intimate with men. It's very different and maybe it is because you remove that male gaze and I'm talking about straight women of course. So there is that and you, you know you see it so often that there's this like competitiveness with women that we're you know not to kind of use a fucking old sticky term but like we are pit up against each other and we are compared constantly in ways that like men aren't like you don't see the two Johnnies being compared <laughs> in the same way you just don't um and that's not their fault it's just it's just a society problem man but you know it is what it is and it has to be noted so like maddie is seen in comparison to cassie and although she's the stronger character in season one you still see her through the lens of the weaker friend and this is done so fucking well by the writers and of by sam levinson because Cassie presents herself as the more vulnerable and softer character and it is outright said to us it's portrayed to that uh, to that as that to us in the first season we see Cassie even though she's you know damaged in her own regard and has her flaws we still kind of have this weird inner um, sympathy for her because she doesn't have this reinforced confidence that maddie has so maddie is seen as this like bulletproof bitch in comparison um even though cassie's actions are actually much worse i thought something that was so eye-opening was um in the final episode i believe it was where we're, we're doing the play okay we're in the play written by cassie's sister And we have this flashback to when Maddie was having family trouble, which we know, allegedly, according to Cassie, is like the fucking epicenter of all her trauma. She puts everything down to this, that, you know, her father was this, like, I think, alcoholic and troubled guy who was, you know, barely there for her and her sister and her mother. Uh, she had some moments of happiness and but mostly moments of disappointment um and this caused like this kind of like father wound for her um but we also see that maddie had that maddie had to move out of her house because her family trouble was so bad but there's this is where we see the first instance of this kind of weird competitive resentment from cassie instead of cassie seeing maddie as this as almost aspirational and going like how are you like so still so confident after you've had like traumatic things happen to you in your life as well it becomes something that Cassie strives for this confidence is something that she wants to be um 
And instead of seeing it as confidence, she just sees it as Maddie. And I saw this amazing TikTok, and I'm sure some of you will uh, recognize some of the points I'm making because it really opened my eyes to it, where she spoke about how Cassie and Maddie are playing out this kind of like friendship archetype where one friend is kind of studying the other to become them and instead of looking at aspects of your friend that you admire and and kind of trying to hone in on them within yourself like say if it's confidence like it is Maddie or Cassie instead of saying okay I need to become more confident I need to become more confident so I can be a better person and emulate like how happy and positive my friend are a friend is so you work on what things maybe your insecurities are And then you maybe become more confident over time, inspired by your friend. That's like a healthy way to navigate that. Whereas Cassie and Maddie, the way that Cassie navigates it is very toxic. She just sees, she resents her friend for her, um, for what she sees are like greater assets that she is wanted by men uh, effortlessly that she has this boyfriend who's like I don't know the popular jock whatever the fuck that archetype is and that you know even though they fight and they make up and they have this like on and off again relationship Cassie of course romanticizes that and how she navigates it is by trying to become Maddie and then we have season two Cassie she begins an affair with Maddie's boyfriend and Cassie is trying to tell us like oh they weren't together they weren't together blah 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 but we all know that person as well who makes those who makes those um allegations well you weren't together they were you were on a break blah 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 people make mistakes people fuck up and that's okay it can be you know sometimes you can lose friendships from it you can end relationships from it but like if you acknowledge what you're doing and can actually own up to the mistakes you made then you can stop yourself from doing them again instead of making excuses and that's what Cassie is doing with that affair with Nate she is making excuses and throughout the whole of season two she's making these excuses you know she's justifying the affair to herself and we see obviously that like come almost in like a very early culmination where like she literally projectile vomits because Maddie is talking about how Nate is clearly still pursuing her. She has this like physical fucking reaction to it. It's done so fucking well. By Cassie fucking Nate, it's like she is becoming the person that she wants to be rather than the assets or the, you know, positive parts of her friend that she wants to emulate, which we all do in a way. She just wants to be Maddie and Maddie is no longer a person to her. Maddie is just like this kind of character she wants to step into and of course again we see that come to a head where she walks hand in hand with Nate down the high school corridor wearing a very maddy outfit. I have to say like Sydney Sweeney in general like I know it's not a hot take everyone's saying this but she just like blew my mind this season I thought like one of I can't I actually really want to re-watch that episode where she is waking up early preening herself and putting on all these like face masks and everything doing everything she can just to be Maddie I just thought that was done like I mean I it was she's just such a phenomenal actress so obviously just to wrap up on these two Cassie's blowout in the final the finale um it, this I saw was her character's choice to face the music. You know, she has she has this play which is so meta, and I loved it. I a lot of people saying like this is so unrealistic. I'm like, babe, the whole show's unrealistic. It's a fucking TV show. If you want like TV, TV, I don't know reality TV. That's fake too, bitch. Like, let's just like enjoy and indulge in the fantasy. 
she's watching this um play written by her sister really really harsh on her and it's her chance to kind of face the music for no pun intended she's seeing who she is and she knows it's real as well that's why it hurts so much and then when like her boyfriend freaks out about this stupid camp scene where like it is so funny I mean and it's so ridiculous and it's so such a like you know obvious joke to make but that's kind of what makes it so brilliant he freaks out and storms out about it makes the whole thing about himself even though his girlfriend like he couldn't give a fuck that Cassie just had to sit through like an hour and a half of a play that basically is playing at her goddamn childhood drama. He freaks out about this like homoerotic like insinuation. He dumps her and then instead of coming in and like, I mean, maybe she didn't have to go in and watch the rest of the play. I probably wouldn't either. But instead of like sitting with those emotions, she decides to go nuclear. She goes in, she starts lashing out. She's calling out people. She's blaming like everything, you know, she's blaming all of uh, everyone else and all of her problems. And she doubles down on the victim narrative and then assumes the villain role. And I think that that just shows that toxicity that like and I thought that was such a cool thing to see that it's like it's not someone being like oh my god I was toxic we make up we're best friends again it was like no sometimes people just decide to go even more toxic they play into the victim role even more and they double down on their toxicity because it's more comfortable for them to be the villain villain and that's what she says she's like fine you want to be me to be the villain I can be the villain so she's happy to play that role Maddie's character here is now kind of liberated and like we kind of see her that she's not the bitch that she has vulnerability and that she has been so fucked over by her friend and it's kind of like it's solidified right when Cassie says oh like Cassie again is looking for fucking sympathy of her friend who she fucked over by saying like oh Nate dumped me just before that happened and Maddie like solidifies kind of her separation from Cassie by saying like well this is only the beginning you know it's the you know don't worry you're you'll get back together but don't come fucking knocking at my door when it all goes tits up and I just thought that was done so well so let's talk about some of the fan theories I love them this is how I'm going to talk about some of the other characters we're going to flick through them I asked on Instagram um oh yes okay number one biggest one that was sent in to me was Elliot isn't real he's Rue's imagination so there's this theory online that Elliot more so stands for Rue's addiction he is like a, a symbolic of her addiction and I kind I actually really agree with this um so just to break it down for you Elliot is a character who we uh, we see for the first time at the New Year's Eve party Rue goes in and uh, essentially overdoses with him and gets him to fix her overdose with more drugs which you know very unrealistic then we also only see Elliot kind of interact with either Jules or Rue he is living in this house. He's like selling music. He seems to be, he's this very bizarre character. We never see like um, anyone else really interact with him. We never see like a parental figure with him. We don't have any other um, context for him other than existing within Rue and Jules's relationship. And oh, I just think it's such a good theory because when you look at that scene, right, going back to the sexual note, when you look at that scene where Rue, or sorry, when Jules kind of hooks up with them when Rue is in the bathroom doing uh coke or doing oxy or whatever the fuck she's doing this week who knows guys that is when we see it's like 
what he is. He's this part of Rue because he's talking to Jules and telling Jules like you're sexy, you're beautiful, you are sexual and like I could please you and blah blah blah. But Jules, Rue is actually in a, in another building. She's in another fucking room and she is doing something else other than what Jules wants her to do. I just think it's like such a great theory. And you know there's so much there's so many layers to it too because it has that whole thing of like as I said being in a relationship with the addict and with the person they're two separate things and at times Elliot flicks between two sometimes Elliot is like helping Rue in her addiction sometimes he's like you know also present with her her mother like trying to like bring her to rehab it's like this internal struggle that Rue is having there's also some lines that he's that like they say to each other like they kind of mention how like are we good or are we bad for each other and Rue is kind of always thinking that you know like it is that kind of thing of like oh is she this friend who enables her or is it just like this voice in her head that enables her I just think that I really really even if it's like not seen as a I don't think it's ever going to be a show that's like gotcha Elliot was never real I think again it reminds me of like a Lynch show or t- or a movie where so much is left open for the to the interpretation of the audience like you can watch Twin Peaks for example and just watch it for what it is a murder mystery or you can go down these rabbit holes and like look at the symbolism of each character and that's when TV and film gets like super interesting to me so loads of theories about Ash um Ash Trey I know I didn't even get to talk about Fesco yet, but we're going to talk about him here now. So obviously there's that crazy uh, discovery that TikTok have kind of seen where the scene where Fez, um, Fesco, it's in the episode where they kind of go into his backstory and they say that like he had this fear, this like strained gut fear that there's going to be no one that's going to take care of Ashtray. And there's a flash which foreshadows Ash's... Um, being Ash being shot in the finale. Um, so the Ashtray's Cal's son is a big one too. So there is a scene where Cal comes in and makes a show of himself, pisses on the floor, talks horribly to his uh, family, etc, etc, comes out of the closet. He picks up a picture and there's three sons. And now obviously we know that it's just Nate and his brother on the hallway or whatever. We never really see another son. Uh, who would only be a couple of years younger than them. So there's a theory that it could be Ashtray. Now, I don't think, I don't really buy this one because like surely he would recognise his son when he went to the house or whatever. Um, so I don't think it's his son, but there is another theory that people think that like Nate killed the other brother and that's why like Cal kind of says something in that scene as well. He's like, we all have our secrets and he like looks at Nate or something and then looks at the picture. So again, it kind of reminds me like Lynch does this a lot in his shows and his movies too where he leaves these little kind of easter eggs and he'll never go back to them (laughs) like you're looking for a rabbit hole that he's never going to go down but he likes to leave it there for a bit of mystery and mystery is really what makes a show intriguing so there's also Ash is Laurie's son who is that um cold bitch fucking drug dealer um I, I don't buy that as much too, but there is a lot of speculation over Ash. Who was he? I mean, RIP, God, that scene, guys, can I just tell you? I bawled. I fucking wept like a baby. At one point, I actually audibly screamed, no. <laughs> like, fully, like, no. Like, I was, that was a fucking tough one. I knew it was going to be bad, but dear God, that was really, I mean, God, it was amazing. 
Someone says, my theory is that it's an anti-drugs campaign. I mean, yeah, for sure. Like, I think, again, playing out the most extreme elements of the darkness of society is a good way to actually deter people from it in, like, the real world. Okay, so there's a lot of theories over, like, Rue as a narrator and as, like, where the show is going in general. Someone wrote in said that the show is fake. Rue called herself an unreliable narrator. Fez said don't trust an addict. Rue is making up the storylines in her delusions before she dies. So there's a huge theory that like at the end of Euphoria it's going to be like that Rue just does overdose. Some people are saying this is all like imaginations that none of this happened. I don't believe that as much as I do think that I do kind of think that like Rue the Rue's narration kind of reminds me of like the virgin suicides even though the girls in the virgin suicides don't um narrate it themselves there is this kind of voyeuristic element and I do kind of see Rue as like the narrator that she is in the show isn't the character she is in the show she's looking at it from a voyeuristic perspective so I kind of do get that again though I don't think it's any it's ever going to be anything that's like confirmed within the storyline like I don't think it's going to be like remember the hills finale where like they pulled back and it was like a set and it was like oh shit was it all fake I don't think that's ever going to happen with euphoria so this is a um, more of a rumor mill one that I hadn't heard but apparently the Nate and Jules storyline was shelved after the two fell out off screen interesting and that Nate and Cassie storyline because Nate and Cassie was too random and came out of nowhere okay I got what she means that it was meant to be season two it was meant to be like a Jules and Nate situation but it ended up Nate Cassie um I don't know about them falling offline but I do think the Nate and Cassie like what I talked about with that whole Maddie thing like I don't think that was too I don't think that was actually that random it was kind of at the beginning you're kind of like what because she's meant to be like Maddie's bestie or whatever but then when you actually look into the characters and like their backstory I think it kind of did make sense and yeah I mean I love that that um that storyline someone said they're uh, not a theory but I'm so confused by the Nate storyline I me too you know that way like the Nate storyline to me like okay I know I'm gonna be a complete hypocrite here (laughs) and I said that um you know the show doesn't have to be realistic but there was one scene there was two scenes actually in Euphoria that pushed it too far for me and there's such minor details that I was like oh come on when Nate, when Nate's dad left and his mom was drinking, right? His mom's going fucking book wild crazy because she's like, finally that fucker has left my gaff. And he was just sitting there pouring himself straight whiskey and she's like, have another one, sweetie. I was like, oh, come on, on what planet? Like, at least be true to the characters. Like, his mom was never like that. Um, And then the second one was when Maddie's babysitter woman comes home and she's like, let's drink some wine, bitch. I'm like, who on earth does that with their they're fucking babies that are like yes let's have this like inappropriate moment in the pool and get drunk like I'm gonna get my like have a 16 17 year old mind my child and then I'm gonna get her locked like that sounds fucking I mean again I know my hypocrisy here but the Nate storyline yeah his I don't know what it was meant to be was there's meant to be some I guess the redemption arc like he rats out his dad at the end of the season which we all didn't think was gonna happen we thought he was gonna kill him I guess um because he turns up with the gun uh, he also has this like moment where he meets up with Jules and gives her the what he says is the only copy of the sex tape. Now we later find out, or I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I'm presuming he made a copy on a stick, right, and gave it to the police. 
um, to arrest him. I didn't really understand it. Like, are we, is he meant to be having this kind of arc in his storyline? I don't know. We're, I guess, I hopefully season three will open up more about his character. Um, but I did find it interesting that they like brought in that another Freudian thing of like that, you know, the, him seeing that pornography that his father made. I mean, not pornography, I guess it's like illegal sexual content. It's very much seriously illegal sexual content. Um, sexual abuse videos shall we say him seeing them as a young child made like gave him such a fucked up perspective on sex and like he used to dream of his dad fucking him like that I thought that was like oh shit like that kind of does show uh, to me that was like a nod of like children looking at porn so early because he said he was 11 I think 11 is like apparently the average age that kids see porn now which is insane um and I think not a lot of people talk about how that can give lasting effects oh yeah okay so this one I loved um that Laurie is a sex trafficker and that when Rue went looking for a fix to Laurie's house that she was sex trafficked I did find that whole scene so crazy so if you don't remember Zendaya or Rue turns up to the drug dealer's house and she's like gasping for a bit of heroin but she's never shot up before and Laurie's this weird character where you're like she has this she's like oh sweetie like she's like gives me that like kind of extreme Ghislaine Maxwell kind of character where you trust her because she's a woman but she's actually more evil than fucking any man in that bitch like she is terrifying and obviously then Rue wakes up and she's like in this house and she's in the room and like she gets out and she she knows there's something wrong like you know something fucked up happened there because it's like if, if she just fell asleep she'd just wake up and be like oh okay I'm just gonna leave but like the doors were all locked all that kind of shit um really creepy really really creepy again not something if I know that we're, it's going to be confirmed or denied um I do think Sam Levinson is like a genius for doing these having these little open-ended storylines because it keeps people speculating but I do kind of feel like that was implied um I don't know if sex trafficking explicitly was implied but that's something nefarious and dark happened there because of how she left and like ran away like you know when you wake up and you just know something bad happened that's what I got from or maybe she did remember maybe she remembered I don't know okay yeah Samantha having a camera in her dressing room and seeing Maddie try on all the clothes and then obviously gifting Maddie that dress that was so weird (laughs) and then there was this other part where Nate came to Maddie's room and said like smile you're on camera and she gets changed in the other room there's all this kind of like weird implicate like insinuation that's people are watching Maddie that Maddie I don't know and I don't know where that's going and I don't know why Samantha the mother would be I mean spying on her other than just like being like here's a nanny cam in my house like what the fuck is the babysitter doing I don't know apparently there's like also rumors that people think that Maddie's going to be pregnant as a surrogate for I just don't buy that I don't think I don't see the show ever going that obvious if I'm honest but like lol if it did Oh, I love this one. So we're finally going to talk about Fezco. That Fez isn't actually who Rue narrates him to be. She romanticizes him because he's a dealer. Oh, that's such a good take. Like, because if we're going to look at it in the sense that, like, say Rue, on, and I kind of do get that vibe, that Rue is looking at this uh, from a different perspective uh, not as like, you know, this happened yesterday. It's like she's ref- lamenting on something that happened a, a period of time ago um I, what seems like in a former life now whether that's her being clean or whether that's literally her being dead 
that everything is kind of in rose tinted glasses and that kind of to me now is like makes sense to why maybe the show is so glamorized because you look back on things especially looking back on your teenage life as being so romanticized you know whereas really it probably was quite mundane but her seeing Fez because like, there is that weird thing with Fezco where you're like he's such a likable character he's so nice but then he's like you know not a good guy really but he was also this guy this kid who was born into very un- like, unfortunate circumstances and was raised by like a, kind of a psycho his granny was like I mean maybe dealing with the bad hand that she got and isn't that life isn't that a lot of people who end up in these positions that they like unfortunately are dealt a fucking shitty ass card in life and sometimes aren't left with any other option really than what they know and if what you know is dealing drugs then maybe that's true. But it, there is that, there always always that weird question around Fez where you're like, if he's such a good guy, why is he enabling Rue's addiction so much? And I know he kicks out Rue every now and again, but there is that thing where you're like, why are you giving her the drugs, man? Like, oh yeah, someone mentions the creepy closet with the people inside it at Laurie's house that they didn't address yet. That was so fucking weird. There was so many weird things in that house. Like, remember she made them all get naked? Like that, entire I want like a full series on that house like remember in Breaking Bad with that spin-off of like uh Better Call Saul I want like that house <laughs> like that's what I want so I think that is all we have they're all the main uh themes anyway thematically of the theories here I was thinking this is going to be like a 20-30 minute episode and like you can't shut me up for less than an hour I think we've all learned that by now anyway uh let me know if this is something you like I'm thinking of bringing this like once a month or so publicly to the podcast something topical maybe a tv show we're all watching maybe just I don't know a theme in general that's coming up I think it's an interesting way to talk about things let me know what you think of euphoria uh what is your opinion on my takes of Maddie and Cassie their relationship of Rue and Jules am I completely wrong do you agree with me um and yeah until next time see you all ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.